Welcome to the Weird Era Podcast. I'm delighted to share that today we are joined by author Catherine Lacey to discuss her latest novel, Biography of X. Catherine Lacey is the author of the novels Nobody's Ever Missing, The Answers, and Pew, and the short story collection Certain American States. She has received a Guggenheim Fellowship, a Whiting Award, and the New York Public Library's Young Lions Fiction Award, and a New York Foundation for the Arts Fellowship. She has been a finalist for the Dylan Thompson Prize and the Penn Gene Stein Book Award and was named one of Granta's Best of Young American Novelists. Her essays and short fiction have appeared in The New Yorker, Harper's Magazine, The New York Times, The Believer, and many other places. Uh, when X, an iconoclastic artist, writer, and polarizing shapeshifter, falls dead in her fate office, her widow, wild with grief and refusing everyone's good advice, hurts herself into writing a biography of a woman she deified. A masterfully constructed literary adventure complete with original images assembled by X's widow, Biography of X follows a grieving wife seeking to understand the woman who enthralled her. CM traces X's peripatetic trajectory over decades from Europe to the ruins of America's divided territories and through her collaborations and feuds with everyone from Bowie and Waits to Sontag and Acker. And when she finally understands the scope of X's defining artistic project, CM realizes her wife's deceptions were far crueler than she imagined. Hi, Catherine. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. A uh, total thrill on our part. I mean, from the start, what a monumental text you've created. Um, ambitious is obviously the first word that comes to mind. And, you know, so from the start, I just want to ask you, what drew you to this project? Why did you take, why did you choose to take this approach uh, of merging and complicating genres in this way? Well, I, I really do like writing. And I think at this point, um, I was writing this book and, and my last novel kind of around the same time where I had the ideas around the same time. And Pew, is, Pew takes place over a week, and it has its own kind of constraints and challenges. But the constraints and challenges of that book are kind of narrow, and it's almost about being really um, stripped down and, and concise and just sort of trying to work within a really kind of narrow um, set of constraints. And I just I – like, I like writing. I like giving myself challenges that are, um, you know, different from the last book. And so – knowing that, that I had been working that way with Pew, I sort of wanted something that I thought would take place over a longer period of time, take me personally a longer amount of time to do the writing, and and also that had like a multiplicity of voices and a multiplicity of, of like modes and um, sources and, and approaches to it. So I was just trying to give myself like the biggest possible project, I guess is the shortest way to, to explain it. You can only do like... You know, like, I think sometimes I think like the book you want to write at the time you want to write it, sometimes you're like not actually prepared to write the book that you want to write. Mm -hmm. Or sometimes, sometimes I think we like make things too easy on ourselves, right? And we like, we're are kind of repeating stuff. Like I, I know writers and I, the writers that I really admire that kind of start to repeat themselves because they get comfortable in a certain mode and they know they can achieve something, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I think like right now, I mean, I'm, I feel like, you know, at the, in the first decade of hopefully like 
a lifetime of doing stuff, I wanted, I feel like you can kind of like set, set patterns, you know, and I feel like I've tried to like every novel, I've tried to do something. I've tried to kind of do the opposite of whatever I did before a little bit. Cause I would like that to be a sort of mode of, of like, um, of work just because it, I don't want to, I don't want things to get like old. <laughs> I don't want things to get like, I don't want to, I don't want myself to become like stagnant in a way of making something. And so I try and like change even like my, my like work habits. I try and change those as, as often as possible. Right. I mean, on that note, why also maybe you've already answered the question that you wanted to add an extra challenge, but why the inclusion of images, um, in, in this text? Well, some of it is just I, I double majored in visual art and, and writing in college. And I always I was always sort of drawing and making like visual art of different kinds as a kid and like into early adulthood. And yeah, that was one thing I was just sort of drawn. I always like I like Zabald. I like like Kate Zambrino's last novel had mm -hmm. um, a set of images in it. And I just kind of I find it sort of surprising and enjoyable when they're when they're there. And I find it kind of troubles the text in a certain way. It's sort of like, um, you know, the, this idea that like a picture is worth a thousand words or something, or like just just the difference of attention, like a ten your attention span for an image is different than it is for a sentence. You know, you can look at an image for a long time trying to sort of decipher or pull something out of it. Um, but most people don't really sit with a sentence for that long. Uh, I was thinking about that also, like when I was in when I was in um, art school, I went to galleries and stuff with my with my teachers. And I remember at one point I was in a gallery, and um, my teacher Mark was like, just he was like, just notice, and this was like two thousand like five, let's say. He was like, just notice how long people spend looking at the video versus a painting, you mm -hmm. know. And the video may not have taken any longer, or it could have been quicker to make, and maybe has less in it than a painting, but just sort of knowing that, like, the your attention span is different for different mediums, um, I think I, that kind of stayed with me, that, like, that uh, having a multiplicity of form in one work is maybe one way to sort of challenge and sort of change the attention span of the audience. It's particularly haunting in this book, especially because of, you know, the fact it is fictionalized, but it reads like a biography and you and, and the intermingling of real life characters. It, it really feels like X was this was this real life person. Um, mm -hmm. And so it, the images are particularly haunting in terms of, you know, trying to decipher who X really is, which is essentially the whole novel. I guess I'm wondering, did you pick these images you know, intentionally with, with the construction of the person you were trying to create? Um, or was it more so what you're just speaking to in terms of trying to set a mood um, and, and play with form a bit? In, in what ways did an image strike you and go, yes, this, this would reflect X? Yeah, it was a bunch of things. I was, uh, to some degree, some of these images are things I've been collecting for a while or, or were like drawn from like, I have like a lot of, I, or I used to have a lot of um, like vintage photographs. I just sort of collected them for many years. And I just felt, some of them I felt particularly like sort of haunted by. And I think, I think I was just interested in bringing that, um, that experience of not knowing somebody that's in some sort of old photograph, but being drawn to them or being kind of pulled into the ghost of the image in a certain way. I mean, the other thing was that I, I finished the text before I picked any of the images and I knew that I wanted to have a good, I wanted to have written the book before I went um, at fabricating things and, and you know, sourcing different um, images of, of people I don't know and some people I do know and um, I'm in there at some point and 
um, yeah, I kind of, I, I was a mix, it was a mix of like, um, it was a, it was a, there was a mixture of sort of approaches of how, how to select and, and create or fabricate the, the different images that are in there. Um, in the initial pages, uh, as Sia meditates on the loss of X, she thinks, uh, and you write, grief has a warring logic. It always wants something impossible, something worse and something better. What is something worse grief wants? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I mean, I feel like some, like, I think some of that grew out of a conversation I was having with uh, a friend, which eventually ended up kind of becoming a part of the, of the book, uh, an earlier conversation that I think CM has with her brother, where there's, there's kind of, there's sometimes a version of grief or a point in like, grief where I think you sometimes want another chance at the death. It's almost like you want to be able to live the moment of, of losing somebody again. Or um, sometimes I think we, we actually want something worse to have happened so that it could kind of jolt us out of the experience. Like, um, I mean, I'm thinking like I had this, I had this huge breakup a while ago. And at one point a friend of mine who's going through, like has been going through like real, um, his wife is maybe going to die in the next few years. And he's sort of dealing with the slow grief of like kind of watching her maybe lose, maybe losing her kind of in a real time way. Mm. And I said something, he said, he said something, he said, it would be, it would have been easier if your, if your ex had just died. <laughs> and I was kind of like, I, that it's kind of true. I think it's really, that's really like ugly and strange. And of course I don't want my ex to be dead, but sometimes mm -hmm. there's like, Sometimes you, you just like the way that something happened, the way that something unravels or the way that someone dies, it feels so wrong that you almost wish you could get another chance at it. Um, my stepsister died almost 10 years ago now. And I think the I, I almost wish that she had died in some way that was more um, like almost more tragic. Like there was something so mundane about the way that she died. Uh, mm -hmm. And I it's almost like I, it didn't reflect how I felt about it. It felt so kind of like sudden and strange and, and weirdly preventable, even though I don't think it was. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I think so. Those are conversations. I've, those are experiences I've had of grief where I've sort of noticed, like there's a part of me that wishes it, that it had been more dramatic so that it was more digestible or understandable or reflected more the way that I feel about it. I think sometimes grief doesn't always, it, it, sometimes it's, um, you have a bigger amount of grief over something that seems kind of small, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Or For a smaller sure. kind of grief around something that seems really huge, you know? And I think sometimes we're trying to adjust. It's like, it's almost like grief is trying to account. It's trying to account for loss in a way that isn't always very clean. Your work reference consistently this theme in which characters are, are pretty much always running away from their past. I'm thinking back to even nobody's ever missing. And, and then again here with Biography of X, and, and if not their past, like just running away for something. And I, I'm sort of wondering what does fi fiction accomplish for you with that theme? Hmm. I mean, I think, I think a lot of, I think it's pretty common feeling to sort of want to have it both ways to it you know i think it's a pretty like normal human predicament to want stability and safety and closeness and reliability and also to want adventure and instability and excitement and difference and all these things and i think most people most adults i know are in some sort of having some sort of conversation or battle in between those two desires right and mm -hmm. i think 
yeah, I don't, I don't think it's particular to me that like you think about, oh, what would happen if I just suddenly left everything as it, as it was, <laughs> you know, or as it is in this moment? What if I just started over? What if I had a different name? What if I lived in a different city? What if I, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I, right. I, I don't know if I really think that fiction is very, I think maybe some people go to fiction writing, the writing of it or the reading of it to sort of have a steam valve for that kind of desire of destroying everything and starting over. I don't really think that's what I do, but I don't really know. I think I think a lot of times like what I'm doing in fiction or what I think I'm doing in fiction, I'm, I later, you know, sometimes many, many years later realize I was just totally wrong about it. Or like what I think I'm doing with a book. Uh, I it, it Almost every single time, what I think I'm doing with the book and then what the book actually ends up being. Um, and then what I see in the book, you know, five years later, 10 years later, it's it, it's just so funny to me how wrong I am every time. And though I'm in the middle of doing something or like immediately after when I'm doing these conversations and stuff, it's like, I'm just making a guess about what I was thinking or doing. <laughs> it's like, I'm pretty sure that I don't know. I'm pretty sure that I don't know why I'm doing it. So for me to make a statement about, well, I don't think I go to fiction to be fulfilling some sort of escapist fantasy without blowing out my life. I'm not sure if that's actually true because I do think that sometimes I've written things that have blown up my life, not because the publication of them did anything to, in particular to my life, but sometimes you write, you see yourself write something down and only then do you realize what you believe. You know, not necessarily mm. that you believe that thing, but it kind of shows you something that maybe you weren't aware of. And I think sometimes you can reach an amount of personal knowledge about, about yourself, about the people around you, about a situation that you're in that can make that life unsustainable. And so I think I think of writing fiction is a really dangerous thing. Like I'm teaching right now and every time I teach I have this feeling of like I want to protect my students or I'm like afraid for them. I'm like I can't believe you guys are in a creative writing class. This is the most dangerous thing. This is the most dangerous thing you can do with your heart. <laughs> you know, and I'm like I I admire them for it and I'm also like are we all okay? Is everybody okay? Like how are we doing? And I know they can never really answer that question in the moment and they also think that I'm probably crazy, but like I've seen it down to the bottom of the well. I know what happens at least for me like when I finish books, I often there's something that happens, you know, there's something that gets lost or I can't sustain anymore. It's happened many times now. So You know, Fiona Apple has this um she once said in an interview and I think about it all the time. Uh, she she would talk about like the act of performance and she's known for the you know these very vulnerable gorgeous sort of performances and she said when it's when the second it's over, the second the song is done, she said it's the saddest it's the saddest moment in the world for her. Um, yeah. And clearly she loves to be a musician and she loves what she does. And clearly, you know, you even at the start of this said that you love to write. So, mm -hmm. so what is, what is the pull then if, if, if it concludes in that sort of like deep, deep possible sadness and um, pain? I don't think avoiding sadness or pain is really a way that I've felt has, that, that has never been a fruitful mode in my life, nor have I seen examples of other people living their life. Mm -hmm in avoidance of pain or sadness. Mm. They don't, they're not living the kind of life I want to live. And so like, even, and I think like on some level, I think, I don't think that I'm right about that for all people, but I know I'm right about that for me. Like mm -hmm. I, I think some people do need to, for a variety of reasons, try and mitigate the amount of pain or sadness they're feeling in their life. Maybe because they live with like real constant chronic pain or like something else that is sort of making it that, so they need to like seek relief in other places. But like the other day I was hanging out with this five-year-old that I really like. He's my friend's kid. And she, like, she, her brother accidentally stepped on her toe. And I, like, started talking to her toe, trying to, like, get her to not feel the pain of it. 
Mm-hmm. And she said to me, she was like, no, 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 I want to feel pain. She's like, I'm okay with feeling pain. <laughs> and her mom was like, I don't know where she gets that. I have no idea. We just, we're not telling her things like this. And she, you know, I think she already had a kind of philosophical understanding that like not feeling pain was not the point, you know, and that like being hurt was not a bad thing. You're just being hurt, you know. She's my role model now. She <laughs> I knows mean, everything. all five-year-olds are my role model for this exact yeah. reasons. They are so distilled. Like, I know that, and it's totally fine. There are plenty of people in this world. Their kids are just not for them. But I, I sometimes I want to be like, no, like, they're they're so distilled and pure. I, I always compare them to a, a, a drunk adults. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Without, like the, they're just drunk adults, but without like the annoying responsibility like they literally don't know that they're being like this and they're being so honest and vulnerable and and yeah they're all my heroes as well your your work does not really shy from from uh violence so often triggered by religious extremism but um it also has a pretty empathetic eye with regards to the general concept of a believer um you know i'm thinking back to pew again now and as well with this book uh, and in this particular, this book, and, and in many ways, Pew was also a queer book, but this book addresses the violence of homophobia. And, you know, I'm thinking of a particularly striking scene, and, and we don't include spoilers on Weird Era, but um, I'll just say to refresh your mind, a, a titular character's child um, has a very painful and dismissive way uh, of dis- of demonstrating their intolerance towards homosexuality and in, in his yeah. own family. Um, it was a really, you know, it was a hard moment to sit in, uh, understandably. I-, I guess I wanted to ask you if you intended to make this book queer and if and and, and why you did if, if at all, if uh, if that was something that you were trying to, you know, incorporate intentionally. I mean, part of part of the predicament of it being uh, the whole book being geared around a relationship between two women um, was. Well, I wanted I wanted to write a biography. I wanted to write a novel that was in a shape of a biography. I wanted to do that. I knew that I didn't want it to be a man looking back. And I also knew that I wanted it to be uh, in a marriage. I wanted it to be one mm-hmm. partner in a marriage writing about um, the other. And I knew that I didn't want it to be a woman sort of describing the great, amazing life of this great man that she was, you know, this great man in the capital G, capital M sense mm-hmm. of the word. And I knew I didn't want it to be a man getting the final say on a woman's life or getting to describe her, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I was like, well, it only, it only could be two women or two kind of queer people in this way. Um, and I felt the most comfortable just writing two cisgendered women. Um, and, but then I knew I ha- that's, that's why the, that's why the American history is, is changed. Um, mm-hmm. That's why the, the, um, the the uh, the United States had split into three parts, and there's one part that's more liberal, and more one part that's a fascist theocracy, and and gay marriage has been legal for a longer a long time in the North, and it has changed the society, and it hasn't made it perfect, but there at least it's like with all the complications, and there's terrorism, and there's it's definitely not like a happy country. It's not like they're better off than we are, but mm-hmm. at least queer people can just be queer, and it's not an issue. It's not a topic. It's not interesting. It's not like it's not something anybody has to explain and it's not something anybody has to feel shame or complication about or we don't have to call it gay marriage. It's just a marriage. You know, it's just what it is. And yeah, I just wanted that. Yeah, no, for sure. And and I know specifically that 
what you've accomplished in this book, and again, something that you did in Pew, is so such I think such brilliant world building. But a, a part of what and you know, you, world building goes in a lot of ways. Sometimes brilliant world building is completely non realistic. You know, you take it to the extreme of sci fi. But your world building is so um, impressive in the fact that it is so realistic, if anything. It, it read like this, it, it's so familiar, you know, when you think about the conflicts happening, um, you know, in North America today, in particular, let alone the rest of the world, this division of, of the South that you write up, this, this fake history that you, that you incorporate in the book, that does, you know, involve a lot of religious extremism, a lot of homophobia, these are th- a lot of misogyny. These are things that are very present in our, in our society off the pages. And so I'm almost like, it, it felt like, and, and I guess this is what I'm asking is if, if, if you, you can tell me if this is right or wrong, but from my end, it felt like you were sorting through the fears of what live in our current society and sort of being like, well, okay, if this is what the world looks like now, this is what I'm scared history will become. Is, is mm-hmm. that a fair reading? I mean, maybe a little bit. Sometimes I feel like you, I like looking as deeply as possible at what's going on in the present moment mm-hmm. um, as a kind of way to to think more kind of ahistorically or sort of outside of time a little bit, because I think we do tend to like play through the same conflicts over and over again. And I think it's, it can be easy, especially now, like with the possibility of having like so much information at your fingertips at all time, mm-hmm. at all times to like get overwhelmed by the situations that seem not like details. Like I really felt like the Trump presidency was kind of a detail. Like I didn't really feel like, oh, this is like Trump's time and like Trump is in charge. It's like, mm-hmm. yes and no. Like it's kind of like if you think about, if you think about like, what's happening historically and what what conflicts are being sort of played and replayed. I think you, it, it can kind of like help, I think, assuage some of the, the tension and anxiety of just like seeing the craziness of the present moment mm-hmm. unfolding. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's, it's not always, sometimes it's survival technique. Like sometimes I think about, like I think climate change is something really overwhelming to try and digest or or, or comprehend in any way. But sometimes I think about the fact that like, the universe will continue. This planet will probably continue in different ways without human beings on it eventually. And that is reassuring to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like, I think about like how, yeah, maybe it takes 2000 years for this piece of plastic to degrade. And I would like to live in a world where we're not creating more pieces of plastic that would take that long to degrade. But I, sometimes I think 3000 years ahead and I'm like, we're gone. We're not here. <laughs> You know, or like you'd think 2000 years before and it's just like you just see how much can change in the course of like it's actually not that long of an amount of time when you think about the the earth as a as an object that's really indifferent to the existence of humanity. I, I, I don't think that's like I think that could, you can also take that line of thinking and just be like apathetic and just pollute and do whatever the fuck you want. But mm-hmm. I, I kind of I feels like a security blanket to me. And I think like. Yeah, I think that's just how I that's just how I process current events. <laughs> and so I think it shows up in fiction or like some sort of oblique use of this way of thinking shows up in in like what I write because I can't really escape myself. I mean, maybe it's just because I find that deeply relatable, but to me that that reads as optimistic and all but all that being said, there is this 
permeating concept of religion in your works. And so, you know, I'm wondering where that's coming from. Is that a background that you were raised in or experienced? And is it something that you've had to face or something that you maybe as an American just feel very much like you've been watching for a long time? Um, what What is your interest in religious extremism and, and, and why is it coming up in your in your text so often? Yeah, I, I was uh, raised very Christian and mm -hmm. I, I took it to heart at, at a young age. I think just because I think some people are just sort of born readers and I was like born into an environment where, I mean, my parents both read a lot and read a lot to me and I took to it like it was the most natural thing in the world. I loved reading. And so then once I became kind of like, you know, age age of reason, although I wasn't in the Catholic church, but I liked that phrase a lot. Um, like seven, eight, nine, you know, and you could start, you could start reading thing. You could start reading the Bible, um, you know, eight, nine, ten. I uh, read it, and I like. It's terrifying. It's terrifying if you think this is a book that explains how to be alive, what is right and what is wrong, how to behave, how you're going to reach eternal life or eternal damnation, how to treat people around you. I just took it. I didn't have any. Like, how else was I going to know? Mm -hmm. how to do anything. And, and so I, I took it very, very seriously. And I, I started to be like pretty fundamental at a young age, even though like, it's not like my parents were exactly fundamental. Mm -hmm. We spent a lot of time in church because I'm from Mississippi and that's uh, in the small town that I'm from, that's where your whole social life is and that the whole culture revolves around church. So and it took me a long time to realize like the culture revolves around church. The philosophy of the place actually doesn't revolve around Christianity. It revolves mm -hmm. around church and and the socialness of church and that's a very different thing than the like philosophical stance of jesus and i was really interested in the philosophical stance of jesus i didn't have that phrase for it i didn't understand that that's what i was appealing to but that's what appealed to me at a young age and it and it fell apart i think partially because the the contemporary the the south of the 90s and, and early aughts that i grew up in uh it didn't actually line up with the the radical stances that I found in the Bible. And mm. it kind of, I, I had a really hard, I had a, like a, I, I had like a kind of crisis with it from like 15 to 20. And I think once I came out of that, I started to be able to, to see what had happened. But at the time when I was going through it, I couldn't tell people around me, you know, I'm thinking I don't believe in God anymore. Mm. Even though like, maybe I would say that to like my closest one friend, you know, like maybe by the time I was like 16 or 17, but like for a long time it was, I was feeling that, but I really didn't have words for it or understand why, why I, I felt like I was coming apart at the seams for so long. And I really just think it was, uh, it was just like an intense belief in God that there was then being like, I was losing it because I was starting to see, um, a greater context than I had, had understood before I started reading religious texts from other places at like 15 and I was just deeply unsettled by it. <laughs> For some reason, it had never occurred to me that there was a religion that was older than Judaism. You know, I just like, I just didn't know. I didn't have any examples of it. Nobody was talking about it until I was like in high school. You speak about it in a way, and again, it's deeply relatable for me. I I, I was raised in an Islamic household, and mm -hmm. um, I'm not, you know, the most practicing person today, but something that I find striking about people with these experiences is because of that like kind of rude awakening where, where you really start to question something that you were just told like unequivocally um there it also comes from the flip side of having such a deep relation to it so to me people like us like you speak 
to this experience with such love and um, questioning, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Whereas I feel like a lot of people take it with one approach where they're just like, are you kidding me? Religion's crazy. Religion's wrong. Or I'm, I am a devout so-and-so and I believe it. But people who have had this uh, pull from one position to the next actually have a lot of love with the first sort of spiritual exploration you had while at the same time coming on the other side being like, wait, what, what was that? Right. I think a lot of people that feel very comfortable dismissing religion out of hand never were religious. I don't think they understand yeah. that some of the experiences you can have, like in the kind of sense-making space of a religion, it's really hard to find that elsewhere, you know? And yeah. I think it's, and it's really real. It's really valid. And I think there's some experiences of, of beauty in the natural world or whatever that are religious. And I think you can call, you can explain God in a bunch of different ways, but I think you can't dismiss it completely. However, on the other side, people that have always been within a religion and can't see any other way or people mm -hmm. that came to religion out of um, crisis. I think that's that like the kind of the sort of trauma bond of a crisis pushing you into or into some kind of religion or another. Um, you fail to see how like atheists also have a point and like maybe they also have a philosophy that's useful for Christians and and Muslims and, and anybody to to have room for and make space for and be able to be in conversation with. Like it makes me think of the same way that like I I remember like like several years ago having this conversation with my mom where I like about trans people and like I had just started to have like you know I'd been in New York for a couple years and I was in my early 20s and I was like knew a few trans people and I thought their experience of gender was so valuable because I was like, well, here's my friend who lives and looks just like a, a, like a cisgendered man, completely passes, but has all also had breasts, had a period, known what it's like to walk around the world as a teenage girl. I was like, that's like, but he also knows what it's like to pass as a man. Now I'm like, how valuable, what like an insightful person. And now I'm still close with this person and he, um, I've, I've been like in conversation with him. I've really felt like, oh, like there's something that tr there's something specifically that I think trans men are teaching men about masculinity that I think can't really be learned any other way. And I think there's and I think maybe there's something similar with um, people that have been both extremely religious and then come out of it or lost it in some way that can be a part of the conversation about what religion is in the kind of like hinge point. You know, it's like not that everybody needs to have that experience or could. Like, I don't think everybody can. There's like not enough hours in a person's life. But, you know, I just I think there's there's something about experiencing something deeply both ways that, yeah, we just have to kind of find a way to find language for it. X's approach to her identity um, in her many reincarnations sort of embraces this idea of being personless, um, lacking any one limitation. She says it herself at some point. I am not a person at all. Um, again, what a. I, what appeals to you about spending hundreds of pages trying to describe a person who they themselves felt to be personless? <laughs> I think, I, I don't know. I This question keeps on coming up or some version of this question keeps on coming up and I keep on not having an answer for it because I just think, I, I just think that everybody feels that way on some, in, on some level or another. Like I think there's just a strangeness about being that is pretty inescapable and... I don't know. I just keep thinking about it. I don't even notice that I'm thinking about it. I mean, like, she, you know, at the same time, X is a person. X, you know, in, in the world of the book, she's a woman. She has the experiences that she has. I think she has a hard time 
digesting or accepting the life that she has had. And so she has these very elaborate ways of dealing with explaining, re-explaining, re-narrativizing it and so forth. And because, you know, the, because it's fiction and you want to be dealing with a character who has, you know, I, at least I tend to, I tend to write characters that are in some sort of extreme state or, or an, an exaggerated version of something that's pretty human and normal. But, you know, her experience of um, the trauma in her life or the, the reasons that she's trying to escape her, her own identity are pretty big. They're not really very common, but I do think that they are exaggerations of something that is very common, you know, it, to, to feel sort of estranged from yourself or to feel um, just sort of like, I think it's an underlying, it's, it's one of the things that religion soothes, right? Is like, here's why you're a person. You came from this and you're going here and here's how you're going to live your life. It's like, that that program gives you it gives order it gives meaning it gives like structure right but and i think people are seeking that one one way or another but we're seeking it because it's not inherently a part of life you know where there's no there's no like way to there's no like life <laughs> um plan that everybody follows it's like it's kind of a mess we're all just sort of figuring it out so i think i keep on writing about like the kind of fragility of the self because the self is fragile. I like whether you want to think about it or not, it just is, you know. I think it's kind of a fundamental concern of of everyone at some point or another. I don't know why I keep returning into it. To me it just seems like I can't get away from it. It just seems like it just keeps being there. I mean, I think that's I think that's part of being I think that's what any one of us are find appealing about fiction uh, for the most part. I, I guess it's a pretty blanket statement, but I think because it's definitely something, as you pointed out, that you're feeling off off the pages, and and going back to something you know even more poignant that you said earlier, writing something down sort of is your way of telling yourself what you didn't realize you believed um, mm-hmm. or knew. So I think that that's it's a question that you're asking yourself, and then taking it to to the pen is is sort of being like, wait, what a second, what do I know with regards to this question? Um, CM makes note of a reflection, speaking of, uh, X makes on, on marriage in a notebook. Um, the whole point of marriage is repetition, repetition, she says. The best it aims for is the creation of strong mutual dependencies. And among the many painful things CM confronts about her ex-wife, uh, there are many reasons for CM to wonder if X ever loved her at all, and, and if she did, why? And you don't dissect CM's character nearly as much as X, so it sort of even begs the same question to the reader. And I guess, you know, I like to say that Weird Era doesn't doesn't feature any any plot lines. And I interview authors all the time, so I, I'm sure certain you'll give me a, a nuanced answer and not a straightforward one, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Do you think X loves CM? Do you know why? I mean, I think I, I guess it depends on how you're going to measure love, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I... I think the fact that X is in CM's life and lives with her and is present and is there, I think that's an indication of like where her emotions are. I think if she really didn't love her, she wouldn't be there. She Mm -hmm. wouldn't have been there. You know, Mm -hmm. she wouldn't want to come home and for CM to be there. (laughs) You know, she wouldn't be talking to her. I think there's just sort of like, I think sometimes that can be, taken for granted or we can sometimes look at our partner and say like well if you loved me you would do this or if you loved me you would remember this 
random detail that like is very important to me but for some reason you can never remember it or if you love me then blah 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 but i think it's very simple i think like human beings like we have a choice you don't have to be in a relationship you don't have to be in in a home you don't have to be living in any particular place for the most part and like sometimes presence is like the kind of foundational um expression of love i don't you know like i I don't I, i don't know i think also like then there's like then there's a kind of philosophical way that you can you can approach like the measurement of of another person's experience of love or even the measurement of your own experience of love like Mm -hmm. how how do you know that i mean you can (laughs) there's a kind of like horrifying idea that like you could tell you know be in love with your partner or whomever and and tell them that you love them and experience that love and think of them and get that like kind of swell in your body where you're like Oh, like I just feel kind of my heart expanding and I feel more in touch with the beauty of the world. But like, what if that's not love? What if there's actually some more like philosophical, like measurable state that is um, more a more pure love? I don't know. I mean, like, I I don't think that's really useful. I think like you have to you have to go with like what um, I don't know. I'm getting kind of ranting and going in circles right now, but I think. I think insofar as I can tell, like X X does does love her. I think she also betrays her. She also hurts her. She also um, disrespects her sometimes. But I think, unfortunately, sometimes that someone that loves someone also does all of those things. And I think that, like, or if you think of like an abusive relationship, right? Mm-hmm. Which there, this is, there arguably yes. I I don't. I think it's pretty clearly like <laughs> yeah. there's there's a measure of abuse, even though it's not like she's not getting beaten up. No, no, she's but... not. It's like it's hard to say why it's abusive, but it clearly is, right? Mm-hmm. But I think also like CM is getting so much from X. She's like getting an experience of herself that she wasn't able to get before this, mm-hmm. and I think she's profoundly changed. Even though like I think we're seeing her to kind of in the brutalized moment of of grief and and loss and confusion, I think she's also better off than she was before. She's more alive. She's more in contact with her own power I think she's more in contact with herself as a real mind as like someone who can really engage with the world and I think she's ultimately better off even though she's also has been abused you know it's like Mm -hmm. and I think I don't sometimes I don't think we want to we want to see that exactly even in our own lives like looking back at some horrible ex you're just like oh this person was terrible to me and like we want to just be able to pack them neatly away and say like you know, no more of that. That guy was bad. It's like, well, you were also there, you know, you're also choosing to be there. And so like, what was it that you were drawn towards or what, what was it you were trying to figure out with this person? You know, it's a more nuanced way to think about it, I guess. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. That answer is so meaningful to me, literally from personal experiences. Um, do you think what this book does is unique? Do you think it be can repli- it can be replicated as a genre? Can it be done again? Oh, sure. I would, I would, I love, I think like being copied is really nice. So I think if anybody wanted to like try and like do their own biography or like whatever, like, um, I think that, yeah, that would be great. I, I mean, that's also like, maybe that's flattering me to even say that. Like, I don't, I also don't think that I am coming up with it. Like, I think I'm drawing on a bunch of different, you know, things that I've read and sort of stances that I've seen in certain books and, um, approaches to things. I think it's kind of like, I mean, I've been having this idea a lot lately that, that like art is a common project that like we're, you know, I mean, 
I feel like I belong to a group of writers that are alive right now that are reorganizing, seeing the world, reading other books, reading from the canon, reading from things that have been overlooked, rearranging them, experiencing the world that's happening around us right now, and then creating these forms, creating these like these new books, right? These new stories that are really just old stories rearranged, right? And I think, you know, I'm not unique, really. Like, I'm a person on the planet in 2023. I'm 38. And I've seen the stuff that I've seen. A lot of it is the same stuff that you've seen. You know, a lot of it is the same stuff that a lot of people have seen. And I think there's kind of inevitability to what gets made. It's sort of, um, it's, it's, it's just sort of, uh, a kind of like a natural progression from what's come before. And so I, I would think there would be, you know, it's funny. I think there's actually several books out right now that have the letter X in the title. Mm-hmm. And I need, I should probably go through and like write them all down and be able to reference them because I think that I would imagine that we're all kind of, we're all sort of circling some similar ideas in those books. I think there's a reason why that letter is coming up as like, you know, it's, I, like, a, you know, I think there's one called The Book of X. Mm-hmm, I feel like mm-hmm. there's something, there's like, there's just several X books that are all like X set apart as like a character or an idea or something that's standing in for something else, right? Mm-hmm. And it's, I don't think that's, I'm not amazed by that. I just think it's it's normal. Like you see, you see patterns, you see things kind of come up in, in groups like this because we're all on the same planet, you know, we're all sort of dealing with the same stuff. And I think coming to this, to similar conclusions or going down similar paths because because it's a common project it's something we're all doing together you know you mentioned your peers and and many of the nonfiction characters in this book seem almost necessary in that they're veterans of the art world you know I'm thinking of references to Lynn Tillman Bowie uh, you know among many others Sontag but you also choose to reference many writers who I would consider your peers uh you know mm-hmm. thinking of Dergert Chubos for instance mm-hmm. um why do that what was what was the motivation there some of it was just the sheer amount of names I had to have in like in footnotes and things like this. And then because I'm drawing from, um, you know, I was drawing from real essays and real things that I was reading and, and I wanted to bring in the kind of multiplicity of voices that are, that's in a biography. Um, and also I kind of wanted to, you know, I just sort of like, do I make up a, just a random person's name or do I use a person's name that like maybe is the author of this comment or maybe, they're the author of a line that I used three pages before. And so like kind of having them like show up in this other place. Some of it is also like a name is actually just a name. Like mm-hmm. Rachel Syme is a great name. It's she's also a great writer. And I think I did quote something from her at like her actual writing in the book, or maybe I didn't, I'm not sure, but I wanted there to be a Rachel Syme, the name in, in like the kind of, you know, list of, of journalist voices in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of it was just kind of random too because I was like I had read something really interesting from her at that at the time that I was writing it so it was like she's on my mind and the same with with Durga or the same with like Hermione Hobie or uh Elvia Wilk I mean like just a bunch of I mean all they all have great names too <laughs> like I just think sometimes the sound of the name is sort of like that's part of it and I don't think I'm I'm not saying to me it's I thought it was i it's been funny to like see reviews or criticisms or like questions come up where they're like why did you make it so that olivia wilk was born 30 years earlier i'm like <laughs> i'm not talking about the same olivia wilk it's just her name like it's a it's an it's a novel you know it's like <laughs> i don't know she's not written in as a character you know she maybe gets a line or something but like no it's true those are great they have great names it's very true they do um 
X writes a novel in this book to great acclaim under the pen name of Cassandra Edwards. The book is called 37. You feature a cover of this fictional book in this book. Perhaps it's a real book and you'll explain it to me now. And if it's not, would you write 37? I've thought about writing some of the like, because there's a number of books that are described in this book as books Mm -hmm. that exist either by X or by other people. And I thought I've sometimes thought about like, well, could I take the assignment of writing one of these books that is like briefly described? That that book is not a real book. I did have I had at a certain point I knew I wanted like pictures of some of these objects to exist within the novel, and I commissioned Alex Murdo to, to design and create that book cover. Um, yeah, and so like he did that <laughs> and photographed it, and it exists. I mean, like it, the, the book thirty seven doesn't exist, but that cover does exist wrapped around some book or another somewhere in the world that I keep on meaning to get it from him. And the same way that there's a matchbook that's for a restaurant called Brenda's that doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And that matchbook mm-hmm. was fabricated and is, is I think at Alex Murdo's house or something. I've been meaning to like get, get these objects from him that I paid him oh, to yeah. make, <laughs> but I keep on forgetting to do it. My last question to you, um, while it's hard to sum up this novel and I, you know, I say that with the greatest of admiration, I do find Sam's musings of first wives uh, at some point sort of apt uh, in doing so. I'll quote, um, Sam says, and, and, and she's actually thinking about Oleg, but, you know, first wives have, have a certain right, she says, however facile, to gaze with a wizened rue at the girls who come after. Um, do you believe this to be true? First loves, first wives, vexes, etc.? I mean, I do kind of. I mean, that's true of, like, you know, it, it doesn't have to be wives, but I think, like, there's something about, like, having a long relationship with somebody, and then your life leads you somewhere else, and you, maybe you, like, I, I was married, and I'm, like, friends with my ex-husband, and we're not, like, we don't see each other, you don't live in the same place anymore, but, like, we're in, we're in touch, and, like, I, I mean, you know, I, like, you just know, th- you just know things about your, about your exes that are, you're very specific and you sort of know their, their kind of patterns and, you know, the, this, their strengths and weaknesses. Of course, those things then change over time. And so to some degree, maybe you don't know that person anymore. But I do think that you, like, you get to live in, you, there's a version of that person or that relationship that exists in your mind unchanged. And, and it's your right to, to kind of live in that memory a little bit and think that you continue to know that person, even if you're totally wrong. Right. So he may think he may think like some of the my like strengths and weaknesses from so many years ago are still present in my life. And he's probably right about some of them and wrong about some of them. And I do the same thing to him. Right. And so like he hears about things going on in my life and he's like, aha, there you go doing that again. Or like I, you know, hear about things in his life and think the same thing to some degree. And I think that it's, you know, some of that is just everybody gets the experience of of the kind of fiction that continues in your mind of um who someone from your past was or or could be you know and but i you know at the same time it's like yeah you have a right to to like indulge in whatever fiction is going on in your mind (laughs) you know like you you don't get the right to like tell people other people what's true about them Mm -hmm. you know or or what's what's going to be like final or and continuing about them because people actually do change, you know, it's like a very uncomfortable fact. And I think sometimes people don't change in the way we would like them to, or we don't see ourselves change in the ways that we would like to, but people do. In fact, they do change. It's one of the most upsetting things, <laughs> you know? Thank you so much, Catherine. That, that was everything. I'm, I'm, I'm so pleased. I have 
I have so much to think about, and that to me is like the best kind of interview. Um, uh, re- listeners, uh, St. Henry Books customers, pick up a copy of Biography of X if you haven't already. Um, you're in for an incredible time. Thank you so much, Catherine. Thank you so much. This was a great, really fun interview. Thank you. Thank you.